in these uh, winter Sundays when so many are in and out, um, here and there, we've switched to Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. We're going to try to cover a chapter a week. And so we come today to chapter 2 of Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. If you'd like to turn there with me, and uh, I'll just mention to you, in case some people are occasionally wondering, I'm reading from the New King James Version. You'll notice it's very, very similar to the ESV, the King James, and the New American Standard, all of these uh, literal translations, which... uh, uh, have uh, together a great reverence for what is repeatedly called here the gospel of God or the word of God. Here now from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God. In much conflict. For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but our own lives also, because you had become so dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil for laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preached to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe, as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of, the God, of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God who are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things, from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us. And they do not please God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved. So, as always, to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time, in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you? In the presence of our Lord Jesus and at his coming, for you are our glory." 
and joy. Amen. Let us pray together. Our Father, such tender and affectionate and passionate words surely struck the people who first read them very deep in their heart indeed, and they remembered again the truth of all that Paul had taught them and had illustrated in his own holy example. So we pray that we too, in reading these words afresh, might be struck by them and the beauty and the glory of the gospel, even in real human life. We pray that it would again shine forth in, in us to the world, for Christ's sake. Amen. Time magazine, a couple years ago, came out with an article on the 25 most influential people in America. The opening line, the opening sentence of that article read, these are not necessarily the most powerful people, but they are the most influential. Hmm. Does that leave you a bit confused? How could somebody be one of the most influential people in the nation without also being one of the most powerful? Don't these things go hand in hand? How can you be influential and not have power? Well, the answer, as one person explained it, is this. Power changes people from the outside in. Influence changes people from the inside out. When you have power, that means you have money or have government behind you. In power, you bring coercive force to bear on the outside of the person on their behavior. So they change because they have to. In influence, you target the inside. You target the heart, the mind. You change their views. Therefore, the people change because they want to, not because they have to. Therefore, we can actually say power changes from the outside in, influence from the inside out, but actually only changing people from the inside out is really changing people, end quote. That's why you can have some young child on social media as an influencer, even though the person has no, no power, right? Or as another example, there's some research out of uh, Michigan State uh, reporting that uh, what's called cancel culture, uh, not to be too political, but that cancel culture, if it's so popular today, is demonstrably ineffective in changing people. Oh, it might coerce some people to do something, but it doesn't actually change them. Cancel culture may be powerful in that sense, but it is not influential. And what do you think is more likely to bring lasting change, power or influence? The answer, of course, is influence. Well, if you're really going to be changed, you need to change from the inside out. But how to do that? We all know people, people who need positive change and growth in their lives, and especially spiritually. Uh, we, we parents surely have that continually before us. And you know that parents have power to affect some outward change for a time, which is important, but that's power, not influence. We find 
influence very difficult. We, we find it difficult even among those whom we are closest to. And certainly in greater society, we wonder how we could have any greater influence. How can one person make a difference in this, in this great world? We often feel like we are the most insignificant thread in the tapestry of life. We've tried to change people, perhaps with power from the outside in. We've manipulated, pushed. We've done all sorts of things to bring them around to the right, but we can't seem to do it. What we really need to know is how can we change people for the better from the inside out? Well, this is a chapter on the Christian ministry, and we have the most remarkable example in the Apostle Paul, this violent and insolent man whom we read about earlier who has become such a tender and affectionate minister of Christ. Talk about the difference between power and influence. Formerly, he had plenty of power. Now he has none at all but he had profound influence. He changed people. And we asked last time, how did this man go from town to town with a message that was offensive to Jews and foolishness to Greeks and nevertheless changed so many lives profoundly, root and branch? Well, I think that this chapter before us, this chapter two, gives us more insight than anywhere else in the word of God The best answer we can find anywhere is right here on this man's influence. This is why he so inspired and motivated people, why the elders in Ephesus freely wept when he said that he was going to have to give them their final goodbyes. Rather than take it verse by verse, I am going to draw, draw out five themes across the whole chapter, all of which start with T for easy remembering. But the first T gets two T's because it's that important. Telling God's truth. Telling God's truth. The first, and by far the most significant reason, why Paul was able to go from town to town with a totally unpalatable message. And and here at, at Thessalonica, think about it, plant a church in three weeks and forever change the people is because his message had divine power. For example, verse 13, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. And you notice that four times in our passage. Remarkably, four times, verse 2, verse 4, verse 8, verse 9, he calls it the gospel of God. He uses God's name actually uh, 14 times in this chapter. And this was not only the secret to Paul's influence, but also to his own confidence, or as he puts it here, uh, boldness. Paul elsewhere 
calls his life-changing message, as we read earlier, the unsearchable riches of Christ. And Paul himself had been so powerfully changed by God, and he rejoiced that he was made the bearer of such a message to the world, despite all the fierce opposition he faced. But this was not his word. This was not the word of man. It was God's word, and it gave him tremendous confidence and boldness so that this man could be like a lion. Verse 4, But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. That made him a considerable force because he was coming with all the authority and passion and power of God. And he knew it. People thus changed by God, by God's word, will never be the same again. Many people might appear on television to be courageous or confident, but perhaps for the wrong reasons. Paul lists some of the reasons why the religious hucksters in his day could be so characterized. He said he he didn't preach out of error or uncleanness. Uh, Today we have popular television showmen preachers who will gain a following by being very positive, very encouraging, very confident, but sadly they often bring a message of error. Paul says, I did not come that way, nor did I come encouraging people toward uncleanness, that is sexual indulgence, which also too often characterized false teachers then as now. Paul was bold to give them God's truth, God's word. It didn't matter how much it cut against the ideas of the day or against the morality of their day. He was giving them God's word. That which alone could change them supernaturally from the inside out. The word of God always changes people and makes them different, sometimes in one direction and sometimes in the other. Uh, God himself says to the prophet Isaiah that his word does not return to him empty without accomplishing his purpose. Isaiah was sent to harden a people and prepare them for judgment by bringing this word. But of course, the word has a different effect on us. We find it to be living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's written, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So it wasn't actually Paul making the difference. God was making the difference from the inside out like nobody else could. And our part is to speak the truth in love. In the home, parents especially are called to teach these things diligently to your children. And you'll talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. Christian children ultimately do not need our admonition and instruction, which we only will be able to give them for a short time, and then they'll be gone. But Paul says they are to be brought up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, that which lasts forever. So for healthy change and growth, there has to be this ordinary feeding every day in the Word of God. This is also how rapid change comes, not only in families, but even in the world itself. We certainly see that in the book of Acts, or I was just reading this week an article about the revival in 
Northern Ireland just less than 100 years ago now. Um, reading this article uh, that read, in the 1920s, Ulster was dispirited by serious unemployment and mass emigration. A reign of terror brought fear and a sense of hopelessness. Politicians had no answers. In the mercy of God, a measure of deliverance came in an unexpected way. A time of revival came, especially through the preaching of a man named William or W.P. Nicholson. Um, he, he came, he was only expecting to be in Belfast for a few days, but he had the opportunity to preach, and suddenly he found thousands of people were converted under his word. The article continued by illustrating, in Belfast's Shankhill Mission Road, uh, more than 2,000 professed faith in Christ at Newington Presbyterian Church in Belfast. They reported that in a three-week campaign, 1,100 people had been counseled. St. Enoch's Presbyterian congregation re recorded that 1,500 had sought the Lord and his grace. And in the towns and villages of Ulster, many more thousands came to know the Lord. It was at this time that, uh, well, drinking had been quite out of control. These were, these were very discouraging times following the First World War. But, but, but drunkenness ended so rapidly in the country that several distilleries actually went out of business. Uh, in, in the Belfast shipyard of Harland and Wolfe, where the Titanic was built, so many converted ship workers began returning the tools they had stolen that they had to build a small house to hold them in. They, they called it the Nicholson Shed because so many of the men had been converted under Nicholson's preaching. They would bring back the tools they stole. They said, well, put it in Nicholson Shed. Um, it was a time in history when many people were beginning to lose confidence in God's word, Nicholson wasn't there to debate it. He was there to declare it. He, he preached it. And I thought, man, what kind of a, what kind of a man must, have this, must, this, must this have been? And I was just amazed yesterday to find that there were some recordings of him on sermonaudio.com. And, and I turned, I, I listened, and I thought, man, I, I don't know what I expected to hear. Some lion of a man with just tremendous energy and power, I suppose. But, well... You listen to him, and you, you, really, you will immediately realize there was no power in that man. The power was of God. I don't know if I should have been disappointed when I finally heard him, but it just made me realize his power was telling the truth. Our first point, the first secret of influence is telling God's truth. Second, we see that Paul was clearly a man of the most remarkable tender affection, point two, tender affection. We read, for example, in verse seven, but we were gentle among you just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children, so affectionately longing for you. We were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but our own lives also because you had become so dear to us. Now, if you read words like this in some leadership manual, what would you think? You went to Barnes & Noble, you picked up some leadership manual off the shelf and say, yeah, you need to tell people that you're like a tender mother to them, right? What would you think? You have to be loving. You have to tell people you love them. You need to tell them that they are dear to you and you need to affirm them. You say, what kind of touchy-feely nonsense have I picked up? No, no. 
was a profound secret of influence that Paul had. He was like a father and mother to these people. The NIV has a beautiful paraphrase of this passage. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. This man wore his heart on his sleeve. This is why when he said goodbye to the men at, at, at Ephesus, uh, they, they freely wept. This is why elders, says Paul, need to be able to be given to hospitality, not just to be able to teach, because influence comes from this tender affection, life on life. Paul is concerned. Speak the truth in profound love. I I challenge you to find any example of a man so tenderly affectionate. Some of us in championing truth may lack concern for love, while others, frankly, embracing love, may show scant regard for truth. It is essential that truth, point one, and love, point two, be joined together and advance together. Or, or, Or verse 11 here. And you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. For this reason, we thank God without ceasing and so forth. He concludes this chapter, What is our hope, our joy, our crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you? In the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming, for you are our glory and joy. I mean, you can't put that in a book. Who could imitate that? Such tender affection. Paul gave his heart away and was not afraid to do it. He loved them and they knew it. You might have heard the saying, people don't, know, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. It's a clever saying and it's often used in missiology to say, you, you know, you really have to work on doing people good before they'll listen to you, win, win the right to be heard. Well, okay. Um, notice it didn't take Paul very long. Three weeks. Sharing his life with theirs. Uh, remarkably loving, sincere, tender, affectionate. Caring for people is, the most imp- is one of the most important requirements for influencing them in a good direction, the truth in love. Jesus says, a sheep will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him. Some people find that they are strangers even in their own home. Again, he says, the hireling flees because he does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I'm known by my own, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And this is the divine secret you see of godly influence. Caring, loving in a self-sacrificial way. So Paul, even in this chapter you notice, he just stacks up these terms of endearment again and again calling them brothers. Saying, you know, we were taken away or ripped away, torn away from you. But we were so, we endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. This is really one of the most beautiful chapters in the Bible, I think. And, and it's not just here, although it's just so well illustrated here, but, you know, he writes that such things, for example, to the Philippians, 
For God is my witness, how I long for you all with all the affection of Christ Jesus. This man had the word of Jesus. He had all the affection of Jesus. Uh, A challenge to me. A challenge to all of us. As he piles up these words to convey his evident, deep feelings with great earnestness. Uh, at school here at VT, I took a class on uh, educational psychology, and there was the music motivation model that's uh, now gotten a lot of traction, actually, for Dr. Jones, who came up with it, uh, how to motivate your students. And you say, oh, this is really good. Some of you that are teachers, like, I, I, need, I need to know how to do that. Uh, you can look up the music model. It's, 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 it's very good. Uh, he has uh, empirical evidence for these five things, M, empowerment, that uh, you know, your, your teaching needs to be able to uh, help your learners to achieve something they desire uh, and uh, um, give them often choice in, in what they can study or, and how they will do it, so empower the students. Usefulness, it has to plainly connect to a practical end. Success, they need to be able to succeed. Interest, they, they need to, it needs to be presented in a, a compelling way um, so students do better with, with these four. And finally, C, caring. You need to have personal uh, interest in and communication to your, your students. Well, you say that's really interesting. Why do I mention that? Because he, he came up with this model synthesizing a large amount of research and and, and motivation for students to put this out for teachers. But he says, you know, of all these five, the the one that is considerably higher than all the other four, you could actually even slack on the other four as long as you have this one, is, is caring. That has the greatest effect of the five. Just in an ordinary classroom. You want to be an effective teacher? you demonstrate care for the students. Well, if that's true in the average classroom, well, how much more in the apostle and in the communication of the gospel and in the love of parents for their children and so forth, um, how important it is to have such evident tenderness of affection Frank Reed spent from 1986 to 1990 as a hostage in Lebanon. For months at a time, he was either blindfolded or chained to a wall. He was kept in absolute silence. He was beaten. He was sick. He was tortured. And he said, the worst of it of all was he felt the lack of anyone caring. He interviewed with Time Magazine. He said, nothing I did mattered to anyone. I began to realize how withering it is to exist with not a single expression of caring around me. And I learned one overriding fact. Caring is a powerful force. And if no one cares, you are truly alone. Some people find themselves alone, as I said, at home. Some people alone in church. It must not be. 
words like we find in this chapter must be heard. This is something we have to give to a cold world. God has made tender affection a compelling, powerful force for godly influence in the world. Third, we find that Paul was always teaching by example. Teaching by example. You see, in this chapter, it's remarkable how many times he reminds them of his example, which he had said in chapter 1 that they were to follow and does press upon them again later. Here, not so much. He just simply reminds them of the character of uh, these Christian ministers. Here it is, verse 1, for instance. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but even after we suffered before and were spitefully treated, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. Verse 5, neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. Verse 9, for you remember, brethren, our labor and toil on your behalf. Verse 10, for you are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly, justly, and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe, as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you and so forth. I, I think sometimes, doesn't Paul get tired writing that? Um, you know, he says it like five times in, in just five verses. Uh, Paul could have just said, this is the way you should behave. And he does that in other places. Far more influential to these people who are facing the same things that he has been facing is to remind them of how a Christian responds, how they saw a Christian respond despite such opposition with such courage and, 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 and boldness and meekness at the same time. You can tell people what to do, but far, far more influential is to call people to follow you. As J.C. Ryle writes, uh, remember the word that the conqueror Caesar always used to his soldiers in battle. He did not say go forward, but come. Again, I make special application to parents here. Children have never been eager to follow instruction in the history of the world, but they will not help but reproduce example. Leadership means people following you, and therefore leaders need to give attention to themselves first, or as Andrew Murray writes specifically to parents here, when the work of instruction of children becomes a burden, you may be sure that it's an indication of something wrong within your own heart. Your love for God in heaven or the delight in his word is fading. The parent's whole life must be an attractive example of what he has taught. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a high word, but it's a high calling, but you see it's even higher in Thessalonians chapter 2 here. The whole life, an attractive example of what he has taught. And this is the tremendous advantage that parents have, even if they don't listen to our words. We have a lot of time to give an example. An attractive teaching by example. The fourth theme I'll point out from this remarkable chapter is tearful earnestness. Tearful earnestness. 
more than just the affection I talked about, I want to point out here, Paul has a profound concern for the salvation of these people and for the salvation of men in general. Paul himself was rescued like a brand from the burning by Christ himself as he was on the way to round up more Christians and put them to death. And, and, and ever since, like very, very few men in history, Paul so spoke and cared and lived knowing that the eternal destiny of his audience was at stake. You see the last phrase of the previous chapter, chapter 1, verse 10, uh, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. We see here verse 16 of our chapter about how they forbid us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved, to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. Or he looks positively to the future in verse 19. Is it not even you at the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that his coming? And so throughout the letter, chapter 5, verse 9, we be the God didn't appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. These statements about wrath um, coming to us in this little letter with more frequency than usual for the apostle. But you see, not in any manipulative way. These, these are the simple truths that Jesus is their Savior. But this was the explanation I'm going to point out for Paul's earnestness, for his urgency. This is why he was able to accomplish in three weeks what many people failed to do in three years, plant a church successfully. Paul fetched earnestness from the last day. He could even now see what was happening in Judea, as I'll mention in a few minutes. The wrath of God was not something abstract. This truth, I should also point out, is widely ignored, if not denied, in the church today by those inside. And I suppose that C.S. Lewis was right when he spoke for many Christians saying there is no doctrine which I would more remove from Christianity than this doctrine of divine judgment if it lay in my power. But it has the full support of Scripture and especially of our Lord's own words. And always it has been held by Christendom and has the support of reason. In other words, we don't like to face this truth, but a truth it is. This world is not going to continue in its lawless rebellion, in its misery and wickedness. Paul, like very few people that ever lived, had before him the salvation of men and the day of wrath to come, and he was in tearful earnestness. Already, he points out, the wrath of God has begun to fall on the Jews Uh, presumably a reference to the thousands that had just been massacred in Jerusalem a few months earlier, and now the severe famine that is only affecting the area of Judea even now. And this was just a few years, of course, before the total destruction of Jerusalem 
and the Romans coming and annihilating, at least according to Josephus, 1.1 million Jews. Amazing number for that day. My point is, he could already see it happening. Wrath has come upon them. And there was nothing ethereal about God's judgment or his salvation in Paul's mind. He himself had been rescued. These people in the church had been rescued to eternal life. This was a reality that was already made manifest in the world. The wrath of God has already begun. We speak about people being in denial because they refuse to face facts. Facts that are often punishingly obvious to everyone else, but a person in denial won't see them. That he's an alcoholic, that she is dying, that he is really the problem in the relationship or so on. We tend to deny the facts that we don't like or like to face. No wonder there is such a widespread denial, if not just ignorance and ignoring of the coming judgment and the urgency of salvation. But this great truth is even subject today to great prejudice, to misrepresentation, to misunderstanding. We, we find the caricature of judgment and hell and uh, everything. When we do find it, it is exceedingly false. We need not only to believe in the judgment of God, we need to make sure that we believe it rightly, justly, according to every man's deeds, as it is taught in the Holy Scripture, and not in the misshapen form in which it is so oft repeated today. God's wrath is the expression of His holy justice, justice and anger that is provoked by sin rightly, as it is in you and in me as well. It has the support of reason. It has the support of all Christendom. It has especially the support of the Lord's own words and Scripture in general, as Lewis pointed out. Don't be in denial. Paul was the least in-denial person you ever want to meet. He knew that he wasn't just bringing people love, joy, and peace and other religious experience. He wasn't just bringing some spiritual tips that would enhance their lives or make them better parents or spouses or help them cope. For I tell you, nobody would be willing to endure such awful persecution for that. No one makes such radical sacrifices if he is simply bringing a gospel to make people a little happier or even for abundant life. You deny judgment. You deny the wrath to come. And Jesus becomes a grand and glorious solution to a problem that doesn't exist. The gospel of God that Paul preached he knew was the only message that was going to make the difference between heaven and hell in every life he met. And this is the only way to be delivered from the wrath to come, to be reconciled to God, to fully and be finally received and welcomed with joy into the presence of God, is to flee to Jesus. And he was therefore in tearful earnestness. He did not delay. Fifthly, and finally, in the passage, Paul's secret of influence was found in his true grit. True grit. Paul refers here to some of the terrible persecutions that both he and the Thessalonians had endured. Verse 14, for you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us, and they do not please God, and are contrary to all men. Um, 
really uncharacteristically harsh words for Paul, but to elaborate, his own Jewish brethren, as we read earlier, would have killed him if they could when he was a new Christian in Damascus, but he narrowly escaped being let out the window at night. And when he first went to Jerusalem, they again tried to kill him so that he had to flee to Tarsus. And while he served the church then in Antioch some time later, wherever he went, they were dogging his steps, trying to undermine his gospel and kill him. At Iconium, just a few chapters before he comes to Thessalonica, they stir up up the Gentiles and those who believe to stone Paul. At Lystra, they follow him and they nearly stone him to death. The same fierce opposition then in Thessalonica. Then he goes on and finds the same thing in Berea. And Corinth, I mean, it's really, it's, it's an astonishing fact that he just simply lived. God was preserving his life. And, and Paul's strong words against his fellow Jews have led some to suggest that maybe Paul didn't write this. This is so anti-Semitic of him, some people say. No, no, he himself is a Jew. He has such tender concern for his own countrymen's salvation there is no evidence for a conclusion that Paul didn't write this, and this is not modern anti-Semitism at all. Paul was no anti-Semite, nor was Jesus, who pronounced judgment upon the Jewish leaders and nation for their wickedness and hardness of heart. I mean, Paul elsewhere says if he could, he would forfeit his own salvation if only his fellow Jews could have eternal life. And wherever he preached the gospel, he always began with his own beloved brethren, the Jews. We have to reject the misuse of this passage, as this particular passage has been misused in the history of the church, particularly in the days of Nazi Germany. We must reject the misuse of this passage, but we must also use it properly. What this passage is pointing to was that Paul was a man of enormous courage and true grit and this is what he again is commending to his readers who are suffering the same thing again verse one you yourselves know brethren that our coming to you wasn't in vain but even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at philippi as you know we were bold in our god to speak to you the gospel of god in much conflict Some think that Paul was the most naturally courageous man that ever lived, but he assures us otherwise. Um, he, he's writing this letter, by the way, from Corinth, where he, when he goes to Athens and then Corinth. He, um, Corinth, where he said, you know, I, I, came to, I came to Corinth with fear and with much fear and trembling. In many ways, he often reminds us that he is not courageous or impressive in body or speech, he says, please pray for me in this particular area. Nevertheless, amidst such violent opposition, Paul's courage, his physical courage, his bravery, his, his, his courage among such strong opposition was a true sign that God was at work, and it was a proof of Paul's genuineness. You don't act like this to bring somebody just some mere tips or even the goodness of an abundant life. The truth is, every last one of us feels intimidated to the point of silence with friends, co-workers, family members, 
Every one of us. Paul felt it keenly. At Ephesus, he said, there was fightings without and fears within. I got hostility out there. I got an enemy in here. He was like all of us. But he, he pressed on anyway. And he saw the victory. He would not be intimidated. And this was the secret to his influence. Because anyone who seeks to influence others for the gospel will be opposed and maligned. I mean, Jesus himself said, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecuted, persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. The other side of that. And as much to say as you will be hated and you must press on and you will see the victory that I saw. We need courage to press on in the midst of slander and opposition. And we pray rightly for opportunities to speak with people, but the truth is people and opportunities are all around us all the time. What we need is courage. What we need is confidence in God's word and to be bold for Christ or in a word, we need true grit. Like few men that ever lived, Paul was a man of true grit. Well, these principles. Telling God's truth. Tender affection. Teaching by example. Tearful earnestness. And true grit. Why are they necessary? Simply put, so that you won't let live your life in vain. We don't want to come to the end of our life or any chapter of it with the sad conclusion that we were afraid to make such a beautiful difference in the lives of other people. Courage to act, to speak, to care, even to weep is essential to making our lives count for Christ to bring the influence of God to others unto eternal life. And then we can say, what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you? In the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ, at his coming, you are our glory and joy. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, his magnificent words humble us and cut us to the quick. And we confess that we are in so many ways just spiritual uh, midgets, pygmies. uh, People who have little faith. We pray that as we have come to these things afresh that uh, they would... They would put a renewed determination in us and in the coming year that there should be a a new change in us and through us in the world. Not a change ultimately of our power, but of yours, gracious Father. We submit ourselves once again to you, confess the rightness and the beauty of these things. And we see their effects. We see it in the world. We see it in Paul's life. We see it even in ours to an extent. But we forget those things which are behind and we would now press on and 
seek that high upward calling in Christ Jesus and lay hold of that for which Christ has laid hold of us.